Mark, Mark 14. We, uh, let me say um, a couple of intro things about this because we're going to read a lot of the Bible today. So if you're not used to reading the Bible, you know, well, today is going to help you get, get going on it. It's important. I'm going to explain why it's important because we're, we're talking about Peter's denial of Jesus. That's where we are in the story. But it's, there's a lot of different chapters in Peter's life, and I want us to put a few chapters together because I think when you put all the chapters together, uh, it's far more powerful and insightful for us. And I think it's meant for us to read it like that, all the, all the next three chapters of his life um, and connecting the dots. It's, it's, it's interesting that this is one um, of the things in the Gospels that appears in every single Gospel. Uh, Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial and Peter's denial makes its way into every single Gospel. And you have to ask why. I mean, it's not exactly like a high point. You know, it's, it's a low point, if anything. It's like it's, it's Peter bombing out when Jesus needed him the most. And yet somehow it's recorded, not once, in every Gospel it makes its way in. And it's just a reminder for us that there is something for us to learn in, wh- in why it's there. Why is it recorded in every gospel? Because God wants it there for us to learn from and to hold up that there's only one hero in the Bible. And his name is Jesus. Everyone else who does anything else significant is almost always, the Bible's almost at pains to paint the humanity and the fallenness and the brokenness of every other person that God has used in the scriptures and put them next to Jesus and say, he's the hero. Look at all of these lot. Look at David. Look at Peter. Look at Paul. Look at all these guys. Not perfect. Not perfect. Yes, he's perfect. And that's part of why this is recorded in meticulous detail for us. So we're not under any illusion that Peter is the, the hero of this story or even the focus of this story of his own um, denial of, of Jesus. So let's Let's read it. If you're a note taker, we're going to read uh, Mark 14, 27 to 31. Then we're going to jump and read uh, verses 66 to 72. And then we're going to read John chapter 21. Almost all of it. All right? So I'm just going to keep reading. There's no slides. You have to fire up a Bible or open your own Bible. Sorry, this morning. Let's go. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will fall away. Because it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, If I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. Verse 66. While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maidservants came. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Then he went out to the entryway and a rooster crowed. When the maidservant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, you certainly are one of them since you're also a Galilean. Then he started to 
curse and swear, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Turn to John chapter 21. It says this, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, and Zebedee's sons and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. He said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord. He said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. Let's pray together. Father, we love you for the gift of your word. As we ask Sunday by Sunday, we pray that you would speak to us from it. We feel like even in just the reading of this, you have been speaking to us. We pray that the Holy Spirit would help us this morning to make clear what we need to hear from you, what we need to see about you, what we need to see about ourselves. I pray that in in my 
words we would collectively hear your voice and that you would love us and strengthen us through your word. More than anything else that we need this morning, we need to hear from you. And so we pray, living God, that you would speak and give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned that this is a, this is a key point in, in Peter's life. I think, I think this is a, a def, one of the defining points in Peter's um, entire life and his journey uh, with Jesus. Uh, and I, uh, like I said, uh, I don't think Peter is the star of this, of his own life or of this. And so what I'm going to do is I want us to, I want to leave three things about Jesus with you that help you remember and see uh, in this chapter and in the next chapter that we'll get to later on um, what, what the point of this is and, and the point of Peter's life and this colossal um, failure. The first, and they, they're very simple, they're very simple points. The first is this, that Jesus knows and he loves. Jesus knows and he loves. It is, it is astounding when you consider this story, how intimately and deeply um, Jesus knew Peter, that he can predict the exact way in which uh, Peter would fail uh, Jesus. At the hour of his of his greatest need, and he knows he knows Peter so well. I mean, we've been tracking all the way through Mark. You've seen you've seen Peter. If you're not very familiar with the Gospels or with Peter, he is the front-footed, loud-mouth, back himself disciple. He asks, he 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 speaks before he's spoken to. He he, he overpromises and underdelivers. He's always wants to be there, right with Jesus. He's you know, not um. He's not the guy who thinks things through. He's not the strong, silent type. Let's put it that way. He's just like, you're not going to die wondering what Peter, what Peter thinks. And Jesus knows him so intimately, um, and he knows the exact way that, that he's going he's gonna to bail on Jesus. He knows him, and he loves him. And he called him to be a disciple, to follow him, to make him a fisher of men, to leave the boat and the nets and the fishing life and that industry and to follow him and to be the leader of the early church, which we'll see in Acts. He called him to be all of those things, knowing full well who he was asking to follow him. Knowing three years before this that Peter, when Jesus really needed him there, would deny him and abandon him and Jesus would be, as he predicted, left all alone in his greatest hour of need. Jesus knew. This is the point I want to Jesus knew Peter, and he loved him. He knew him better than he knew himself. Peter didn't know he was going to deny the Lord. He, didn't, he, he, he was backing himself, even if I have to die. <laughs> it's, it's appalling when you read the story. I mean, I think we'd all probably find ourselves in the same place there. But it's, you, you can't help but be struck by the force of this. Even if I have to die with you, I'm not leaving you alone. Fast forward a few hours, and he is running for his life, denying Jesus. He's got multiple opportunities to, to not deny, to not deny. He's got 
He can bail or he can deny once and say, oh, wait, 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 wait. Jesus predicted, if I, I'm going to do this three times, oh, there's a, there's a rooster crowing, oh, hectic, like, but it says only at the end he remembered. I think it's in Matthew's account. We're not going to read it again. It says that after Peter's third denial, Jesus looks at him. He looks at him and then Peter remembers. And it says he broke down weeping and left. You can imagine the crushing sense of shame. We're going to talk about that. But Jesus knew that this was Peter. And he called him to follow him. And he used him as an instrumental leader in the early church. Part of the reason why you're sitting here today as a believer in Johannesburg is because of the way God used Peter in the early church. And Jesus knew him backwards. And he loved him. Why am I saying this again and again and again? Because I want you to get the point that Jesus knows you backwards. And he loves you. He knows the real you. He knows the real you. Not the you that you pretend to be at church. Not the you that you pretend to be before God. Not the you that you hope you will be one day. Not the future improved version of yourself. He knows you. He knows you at your absolute worst. He knows what you are capable of. He knows the sin that you are still going to commit. He knows how your courage will still fail into the future. And he loves you. This is the message of the gospel. That you are known by God more thoroughly than anyone else knows you. And you are deeply, deeply loved. There is no other message in the world like this message that you are so intimately known. And in spite of that, you are deeply, deeply loved. You don't have to pretend. There are things about everyone in this room's uh, life that if we put up on a screen here, you would, you would leave the room. You would never come back to this church. <laughs> Some friendships would end. Your marriage may be in difficulty. If, if, if my life was put up there, I wouldn't be your pastor, I don't think. <laughs> You'd all leave. I'd get fired. I don't know. There's things that happen in my mind and my heart that I am appalled by and that you know nothing about. But there is one who knows me fully, better than I know myself, and he loves me. And his thorough knowledge of me is what makes the gospel so glorious. That you are so thoroughly known and so deeply loved in and through Jesus Christ. And you hearing that message should make your heart leap again. That there's nothing that you can do to impress God. He's not proud of you that you came to church this morning. That you've had a great week. That you brought your own Bible with you. Whatever it is, anything that you could pat yourself on the back for, God is not interested in those things. He sees you at your absolute worst. And that is when he loves you. That is when he loves you. It's easy to love you when you've got your act together, you're sitting here on Sunday morning paying attention at church, easy game. He loves you in the depth when you are planning to commit sin. God's love does not turn away from you. He is the Bible says he has set his affection on you. 
That is the thoroughness of the message of the gospel that you are deeply known and deeply loved. That's why this account of Peter is here. I think that gospel writers want us to know, God wants us to know, look how well Jesus knew Peter. Look where he knew what he was capable of. And he didn't kick him off the team. He wasn't like, oh, this Peter, he's got promise, but geez, I know. I know when the chips are down, this guy's going to bail on me. He's going to deny, he's going to run. He's going to try to lop someone's ear off with a sword and get it right. You know, he's just going to be a nuisance in the mix kind of thing. I need other disciples, better disciples. Jesus knew the disciples. He knew what they were capable of and not capable of. And he loved them. And you, my friends, and I are exactly the same. That's the point, is that Jesus knows and Jesus loves. The second is that Jesus pursues and Jesus restores. Jesus pursues and restores. You, you can imagine the sense of shame that lingers with Peter in this. After his third denial, the cock, uh, the rooster crows. I'm not, a, I'm not a farmer. There's some lovely person who lives in our suburb who has a rooster. I thought they were illegal in the suburbs, but apparently they're not. They should be. And um, that beloved bird, uh, I don't hear it every morning. Sometimes maybe it's a wind direction thing. It'll just go, you know? I think it feels like it needs to get the sun up kind of thing because they're always going like before the sun comes up. And when you hear a rooster crow, it's not like, like in the movies Cock-a-Doodle-Doo and then it's like done, like go off and do rooster things for the rest of the day. Like they, they're like, like they go and they go and they go and they go until everyone's up, you know? So when the rooster crows, I, when sometimes when you read this, it's like he denies three times and then Cock-a-Doodle-Doo and then Peter cries and then runs away like... Peter has denied Jesus three times, and I can imagine this rooster is going, cock-a-doodle-doo, 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 like this rooster is flipping crane, and it's just drilling into Peter's mind, like, this is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. That before this stupid bird carried on like this, you would deny me three times, Jesus looks at him, and he just breaks down. This is the only time you'll read of Peter weeping. The sense of shame that washes over him. He says he remembers what Jesus said was going to happen. And Jesus looks at him as he's been led away. And Peter just dissolves. And this wave of shame just washes over him. And they haven't had a chance to talk it out. They haven't had a chance yet. Jesus gets crucified. He gets resurrected. This is, it says, you, you read in the account, this is the third time in John when he goes to um, make them breakfast on the beach. That's the third time he sees them. There's a post-resurrection time. They never get time one-on-one to talk about that colossal failure. And here you read in John 21, Jesus goes to find them. They are back in Galilee. They're not in, they're not in Jerusalem. They've gone back to fish. I don't think they've gone back into the fishing industry. I think that's just what they knew how to do, and they needed food. Uh, and Peter says, I'm going fishing. And they were like, we're coming with you. And seven of the 11 remaining disciples are all out there um, fishing. And Jesus rocks up, and some of them recognize him, and others don't. And he cooks them breakfast on the beach and sets a perfect setting there to have this conversation with Peter. What I want you to understand is that Jesus goes looking for Peter. Jesus goes looking for him because he needs to restore Peter. There needs to be a restoration because the future of what God is wanting to do in Peter's life is dependent 
on this interaction, on them having, and Jesus does it in a very backfooted and gentle way. Peter needs to understand and make progress on the sense of shame that's just unspoken. Um, you know, they haven't had a chance to air it out. Peter hasn't had a chance to apologize to Jesus. Jesus, you know, I'm sorry, you know, I know you needed me, I wasn't there. We, we don't know what all the, the dialogue and the detail is. But what happens, Jesus goes, makes them uh, a fish breakfast. It's a terrible idea, I think. But, I mean, obviously back then it was appreciated. Um, last thing I feel like eating in the morning is fried fish. But nevertheless, there they are. And sits him down and he asks him three questions. Why three questions? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Three denials need three questions, three times to cancel out. And he says to him, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, we don't know exactly what he means when he says more than these. It could be more than these boats and these nets, more than this 153 fish that I've helped you to catch, or more than these disciples. I think the interpretation is the other disciples. And he's reminding Peter, because remember, what did Peter say? Even if these clowns uh, leave you, I won't. I'm your guy. I'm, I'm your guy. I'm going to die with you. These oaks may bail on you. Absolutely. I can, I can imagine some of them bailing on you. Yeah, Lord, but not me. I'm Peter. I'm your rock. I'm your man. I'm your guy. And he does exactly that. And Jesus comes and he asks him three times, do you love me more than these? You said you did. And then you didn't. Remember, this is all in the space of weeks. And days. Do you love me more than these? He's like, yeah, I do. And you, in the third, by the third time, he's getting annoyed with Jesus. You, you, yeah, you know I love you. Why? Why? It says he's offended. Why are you asking me three times? Maybe Peter hadn't made the connection between the three and the three. And Jesus gives him a, a new commissioning. Feed my sheep. Shepherd my sheep. Feed my lambs. You're going to pour yourself out. And then he, he, he makes this pronouncement over Peter. You can imagine the rest of Peter's days with this, these words hanging over his life, hey, when you're old, you're going to be led somewhere you don't want to go. You're going to suffer for me, and you're going to die. And he goes through his whole life, not knowing exactly when that's going to happen. And we know that it says there in Mark, like, sorry, in John, predicting the kind of death that he would die. And historians tell us that he was, he was crucified upside down. That was the manner of, of, his, of his death. Imagine that hanging over your whole life. You know you're going to die for Jesus, but you just don't know when. And he's calling you to follow him. Because that's what he says, to follow me. Hey, look, it's not going to turn out well for you in the end, but I still want you to follow me. And I want you, this is going to be your life, you're going to feed my sheep. If you love me, I want you to go and serve my people. And this three-fold question and interaction cancels out this three-fold denial. But you still don't see a change in Peter yet. You still don't see a change in people, Peter, yet. All I want you to get from this chapter of the story is that it's Jesus who goes looking for Peter, not Peter who goes looking for Jesus. And when, my friends, when you sin, and when your courage fails you, and when you deny Jesus, and when you wander away, the message of the gospel is that Jesus comes looking for you. He is the pursuer. He is the one who comes to win your heart back to him. And he comes to restore you when you have failed him. He doesn't ask you to 
process things and to clean yourself up and gee yourself. He is the one who comes and searches for you and wins and woos you back by the work of the Spirit to himself and forgives you and cleanses you and refreshes you and strengthens you and washes forgiveness over your life again and again. Shame has this effect on people. That when, when, you, when you sin, and it can be any magnitude of sin, and shame starts to wash over your life, the devil comes and accuses you and tells you you're no longer welcoming God's presence. And the very thing that you need, you don't do. When we sin, what we need to do, the knee-jerk reaction is that we run towards God. That he is who we most need in the, in the depths of our sin and our shortcomings and our failures and our weaknesses. Except when we do, and when, our, when we do sin and when our hearts wander away, we feel like we can't be with him. And the devil comes and lies in your ears and says, no, no, you're not welcome there. You're not welcome. You're doing again what you said a million times you wouldn't do. You said you would stop that. You said you would do this. You said those days are behind you. You promised this, whatever else. You're not doing it again. Don't go knocking on God's door again. You're not welcome there. You're full of nonsense. And the very thing that you need to be in the presence of God, to have the gospel wash over your heart again, we are tempted to run away and hide in the dark and in the corner. Because shame will keep you there. And remember what Jesus says when you read the Luke accounts of this uh, prediction of denial, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. This is a crucial part of this story. That you don't see it in Mark, you only see it in the Luke account. He says, Satan has asked to sift you. This whole um, chapters of Peter's life is, is, is Satan sifting Peter, and he fails the test. But who is holding Peter? Jesus says, I have prayed for you, Peter. I have prayed for you, that you may not fall away, that you may not fail ultimately. And when you return, when you come back, when I restore you, come back and strengthen your brothers. Some of you some of you have had colossal failures in your life. You've had things that you are deeply, deeply ashamed of, and you don't want anyone to know about that. And I understand, I understand that. What I want to encourage you with this morning is that, and I'm going full on Pentecostal kind of alliteration here, that your wipeouts can be a witness. Your wipeouts can be a witness. When you, the things that you feel the most ashamed of, the, the, the things that you hope to hide from God and others. It's those things that God can use as a witness, not to how you then got back up again and sorted yourself out. The witness is how gracious and faithful and loving God is to restore you and to love you and have pursued you in the midst of your own heart's wandering. Your wipeouts can and should be a witness, pointing to the faithful love of a God who, as Dave said, won't let you go. He takes hold of you with a stronger grip than your hold is of him. And here you see, Peter's wandered away. He's had a wipeout. Jesus comes and pursues him and restores him. The third thing I want you to see is that Jesus empowers and sends. 
Jesus empowers and sends. This is the next chapter of Peter's life. He calls him to follow him. There's this threefold question that cancels out the threefold denial. Peter says, I do love you. I do love you. Jesus says, follow me. Later on, Jesus says to the disciples, look, don't go anywhere. Stay in this city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And just, just as Jesus said, and they're gathered upstairs and they're praying, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them on the day of what we call Pentecost. The Father sends the Spirit, and they receive the Spirit, and there's tongues of fire and different tongues, and it's chaos there. The whole city is full of people from all over the place. And who, who gets up to preach? Who? Peter. Peter gets up and he preaches one of the best sermons you'll probably ever hear. Because thousands of people become Christians on that day because of his sermon. The church just, just, it's like, just add water. It's like it goes from this little ragtag bunch of disciples. The Spirit comes. And now there's thousands of people in one day. They're trying to make a magava and make a plan to baptize all of these people. The church just starts like an explosion. And you know who's leading the charge? It's Peter. Where is he preaching the sermon? In Jerusalem, this is weeks after his courage has failed. And he hasn't wanted to be identified as being known to be one of Jesus' disciples. Now, now full of the Spirit, he's standing up and he's speaking fire and people are becoming believers in Jesus. In the same city when weeks before, he had denied that he even knew Jesus. Why am I telling you this? Because a key part a key chapter in the life of Peter is the sending of the Spirit of God into his life. You see a different Peter before the Spirit and after the Spirit. And you just need to go and read the book of Acts to see what God then does in the life of Peter and how he uses him and the miraculous things that he does in his life and through him in the church. This is massively important. I only want to make this clear that Jesus is the one who empowers and sends. He does it for Peter, and he does it for you. If you find your persistent sin struggles derailing you, you find yourself lacking courage for the name and the cause of Jesus Christ, you don't need to beat yourself up and wind yourself up. What you need is a fresh empowering of the Holy Spirit. And it's my prayer this morning that, that some of you would encounter the power and, and the presence and the authority of the Holy Spirit in a way that you've never experienced it before. To do two things. To, to eradicate and to drive shame out of your life. And to captivate your heart for the mission of God that he has for you. That you would live with such a courage and a boldness and an authority in God. That you would be like Peter. You would be like this night and day. Denying him one week and preaching to thousands the next. The only way that you can explain what happens in Peter's life is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's the only thing that you can. There's all this shepherding, all this love, all this help from Jesus that keeps him wanting to love, wanting to follow, wanting to be faithful, but there's power that's lacking. There is an ability that is lacking. And when the Spirit comes, everything changes for Peter.
as I was preparing uh, this week, I, I, remembered, I remembered a sermon that I preached um, 15 years ago. I don't remember, I mean, you don't remember my sermons. You think I, I struggle to remember them. But I do remember this one sermon, and it was on, uh, it was on shame. And it was on how uh, Jesus bears not just our sin, but our shame. On the cross, he bears sin and shame for us so that we don't have to live ashamed before him and before others. We have a freedom in the gospel to uh, be who we are and to experience the life-transforming power and grace uh, of God through the Holy Spirit and his mercy. I remember preaching this uh, at our old church, and I'd spoken about how God takes away shame and just the, the, the cancerous power of shame in your life, both in your, in your joy in walking with God, in your sense of acceptance, in just the life and in the power of, of living uh, on his mission. And afterwards, uh, this is forever burnt in my mind, a 75-year-old guy came up to me afterwards. And he was in tears. Eventually, got himself together enough to explain to me that he had been a Christian for such a long time. And as I was speaking about the power of God to break shame and to take shame from him, the Holy Spirit had brought to mind uh, something that he had done when he was a teenager. And, and, and it had defined his life. It was a colossal area of sin. And he, he had walked all of his days with God thinking that that defined him. These were his words. That did define him and that he couldn't shake it off. That he would have to answer before God one day for that colossal failure. And the Holy Spirit had just breathed over him as it were, as I was speaking, as we were looking at the word of God. And he said, today for the first time, I feel like God has taken away my shame. And released me from the power of the shame. He's 75. This happened when he was a teenager. And he remembers the incident so clearly. And it had defined his entire life and his entire relationship with Jesus. Friends, I don't care what you have done. I don't care how long you have held that secret to yourself. I don't care how long the waves of shame have washed over your life. My prayer for you this morning is that the Holy Spirit would wash over you. And you would leave these, leave these doors this morning knowing, knowing in the depths of who you are that you are cleansed not because you cleaned yourself but because the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. And that the shame that you carry and bear was nailed to a cross 2,000 years ago so that you don't have to bear it and you don't have to live with it. It does not define you. It was placed on him so it's taken off you. You're not sharing the load with him. And that you would leave this place rejoicing and defined by who you are in him, not by what you have done. The colossal failure of Peter did not define his life. He allowed his shame to be taken by another and allowed God to use it. And that is my prayer for you this morning. Let me pray for us this morning as we get ready to share in communion. Father, we're that you don't uh, treat us as our sins deserve. There is no one like you. There never has been and there never will be 
a God of love and tenderness and mercy and grace like you are. And we, we thank you, Father, that, that you know us and that you love us. You, you, you see the state of our hearts even this morning. You've known us our, our whole lives. There's not a, a moment of any day that hasn't been lived fully before you. And yet even in the midst of all of that and all of our own mess and how we try and sabotage our own lives and the sin and the foolishness, even in the midst of all of that, you love us and you hold us and you keep us as yours. Thank you that when we wander away from you, you're the one who pursues us and comes and restores us back to you. And we thank you that you are the one who sends your spirit in us and amongst us to empower us and to send us on your mission. We want, to, we want to ask, Father, that this morning again you would breathe over us by the Holy Spirit. You know what each of our hearts are processing at the moment. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. I pray particularly for those who feel overcome and overwhelmed by a sense of shame and failure. And I pray that you would love them through the mercy and the help and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you would restore them, that the truth of the gospel would wash over their hearts again and again like waves that would beat away the shame and send them from this place rejoicing again in the goodness and the faithfulness and the newness of life in Jesus. We sense your presence amongst us this morning, Father, and I pray that right now we, we welcome you, Holy Spirit, amongst us to do the work that only you are able to do. That you would search our hearts, that you would love us, that you would forgive, that you would restore.